Hey there, it's Jim Stengel, host of the CMO Podcast. We're all marketers here, so let's be real for a sec. We all know that your website shouldn't be a static asset. It should be a dynamic part of your strategy to build your brand and drive conversions. That's Marketing 101. But 54% of marketing leaders say web updates take too long. That's over half of you listening right now. And that's where Webflow comes in. Their visual-first platform allows you to build, launch, and optimize web pages fast. That means you can set ambitious marketing goals and your site can rise to that challenge. Learn why teams like Dropbox, IDEO, and Orange Theory all trust Webflow to achieve their most ambitious goals today at webflow.com. Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. So Diana, what's the first brand you remember having an impact on you? Pepsi. I could only have it on Friday nights. And my dad was trying to teach my siblings and I about investing. And we got to pick one stock to invest in. And we invested in Pepsi. Do you still have Pepsi on Friday nights? Uh, I do not. still have Pepsi on Friday nights, but I still believe in the Pepsi stock. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel. And I help major brands find their purpose and activate it. And the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. Today, my guest on the CMO podcast is Diana O'Brien. Diana is the global chief marketing officer for Deloitte. Deloitte was founded in 1845 in London. It has $44 billion in revenue. It has 285,000 associates. It's a big company. Diana speaks today about pioneering in so many areas. She does it with such humility, and I unpack all of it. You're going to love this podcast. We recorded this at the University of Cincinnati at the Lindner College of Business in front of about 80 students. The atmosphere is electric. Diana loved it. And I loved how she glowed as she spoke to young people at the end of the podcast. Here is my conversation with Diana O'Brien. So everyone, welcome to uh, this live version of the CMO podcast here at the University of Cincinnati Lindner College of Business for the first time. And there is no one better to kick off our first live podcast in Cincinnati than Diana O'Brien who is the Global Chief Marketing Officer of Deloitte and a dear friend. So welcome, Diana. Thank you. Thrilled to be here. You work with Deloitte. Deloitte is actually, I don't know how many of you knew this, but it was founded in like 1845. Yeah, we're going to come up on our 175th anniversary so it's almost year. as old as P&G. Yeah. Right? Founded in London. You're now, what, 285,000 employees. Yep. $44 billion or so in revenue. Yep. So a real machine. Yep. And I want us to go beyond Deloitte and get to know Diana a bit better. So I'm going to fire out a couple things that I don't think any CMO has ever done before. And I just want to read this list, and then I'm going to ask you to react to it. You are the first global chief marketing officer for Deloitte. You were the first woman at Deloitte to achieve the level of principal while on a flexible work arrangement. 
You were the managing partner who opened up Deloitte University about seven years ago, a $300 million investment in a facility that trains 65,000 Deloitte leaders a year. You are the first CMO to sponsor the CMO podcast, a very smart decision. You are the first CMO to live in the same building in Cincinnati as I live in. And you are the first CMO, to my knowledge, to build an amazing career while raising triplets who were diagnosed with autism when they were toddlers. So I would say that qualifies you for the first CMO podcast Trailblazer Award. What do you think? <laughs> Thanks. So with that career, I kind of don't know where to begin. So I want you to react to that litany with a few of the most defining experiences that have made you the leader you are today. Well, the first thing I'd say is when I started, I think we only had about 20,000 people. And I think our revenue was in maybe $2 billion or $3 wow. billion. How many so, years ago was that? Uh, 34 years ago. And, and you left once, but we'll come back to that later. Yeah. Uh, and it... So, so the firm has really changed a great deal since I first joined. I'm not sure I'd cut the cut the cake today and make it hired, but uh, we we, uh, we we could test that out maybe. The um, but what I would say I my career has had seven big careers in them, as Jim mentioned some of them, and that's one of the reasons I've stayed is because it hasn't been like I've been in the same place. I have been able to. Uh, reinvent myself and have had the opportunity to have multiple careers. So that's probably the most defining factor is that opportunity to keep taking on new opportunities. The The big moments are when I left consulting uh, because I wanted to get pregnant. I had been married eight years. Um, I wasn't getting pregnant and I was on the road and I decided that I needed to take an in-town job. So we had a project. It was at USU. I took over the internal PMO of that, still working with my Deloitte colleagues since that was where we had a project. And But it was completely outside the industry that I was in. I had spent all of my time prior to that in healthcare, both the provider and, uh, and, and health plan side. The next thing that happened once I did that is I got pregnant right away. <laughs> And so really being in town is key to, uh, to that. <laughs> the, uh, I was lucky enough to get pregnant with triplets and I stayed home for, uh, almost a year with them before I decided I needed to go back to work and figure out how to, uh, pay for their college, uh, when the time came for that. And so I, I did rejoin Deloitte as a part-time, um, professional and went back as a senior manager. So that was big. Uh, the next big moment was when my kids were diagnosed and I was um, on a flexible work arrangement. I had just gotten my uh, in invitation to be a partner at the firm and go to New York and sign up. And I it was 30 days from that. It was the 1st of May and it was June 1st that we were heading to New York. And at that moment, honestly, it just I thought I'd have to leave. I thought it's over. I can't have a career. My kids need me. I have to leave. And so that probably was the moment that changed everything about my feelings for the firm because the partners around me rallied and said, no, you don't have to leave. You can stay and be a partner. And at a minimum, you're going to fly to New York and become a partner and sign your papers, even if you have to leave the next day, uh, because you earned that. And that was a big lesson for me, like don't give up what you actually have uh, earned. And then the second was that they really rallied to help me have a career and help me fill in uh, the times when I needed to be there for my kids. And so ultimately I stayed. I, I knew that 
being a partner was what I always wanted to be. I had prepared for that, but I didn't really know what a partnership was until then, and I learned that. And then the next big moment, I would say, is when I chose to go to Deloitte University. Tell us about that. Okay. So I knew nothing uh, about running a hotel, uh, learning But step center. back about what is Deloitte University? What? Yeah. So so the it had been a uh, probably a six-year process to decide to build Deloitte University. And Deloitte University was uh, a decision by our then U.S. CEO to say, we want to make investing in our people a fixed asset. We want it to be permanent. We don't want to have to change it every year. We were going into a downturn. It's so easy to cut spending in learning. And he wanted to make a decision that that was not the case. So we made a commitment to build this learning campus, which was to be called our leadership center, Deloitte University. It's 800 beds. It has 36 classrooms. It's uh, it's a it's an amazing campus that allows people to come in and do what what you do here, learn and grow and and nurture yourselves. And I originally was not a supporter of the idea. I had actually we had a, a process where they asked all the partners what you think, and you voted electronically. It was called a clicks and bricks, and they. Uh, I said no. We've got e-learning. Why do we need a campus? But I was wrong, and our CEO was right. Uh, we went forward and built it. But the lesson in that is because I was wrong, he asked me to then go lead it, which um, was the greatest thing that actually happened in my career because it changed the trajectory for everything else. So the Learning Center is where uh, all of our professionals within the first 90 days come on campus. Often recruits come on campus. And then at, at different milestones, you return to the campus to learn. And uh, and it's uh, it, it's what I know about that is that it, it was – um, it was probably the best day of my career because the day we opened, uh, it was a little bit like having babies. The uh, you know when you're when you're when the doctor hands you a baby and 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 you bring a child into the world, you know in that moment that your world will never be the same, and you have so many feelings about how that'll happen. That's what it was for Deloitte University when we opened. I knew our firm would never be the same, and you don't always know the big moments in your life unless they're really big, like having kids. But I knew that moment was one of the big moments that would change everything. And it did. I mean, I've been on site at Deloitte University yes. several times. And it is just um, the energy level, the community, the spirit. The, I mean, the symbol of investing in your people with such a $300 million investment. And then, of course, the ongoing uh, investment. And it is, it is just... Um, it's, I think it's a normal asset that makes you very differentiated, which we'll talk about in a moment. Can you tell us, and by the way, the place has the, be the best gym in the world, and it's a country and western bar, so people can go at night and relax and get to know each other. Um, I mean, it has the facilities for learning are, are, are just unbeatable. What's the, um, the most memorable experience you've had at DU? Okay, well, I probably can't tell you that one. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> when, when you're running it, obviously we have – you know, a lot of people who are there and lots of different things can happen. But I will tell you the thing that I was most proud of when I was there that we did is we hosted a Chinese delegation of Chinese ministers who had different responsibilities within the government. And we did the entire event, everything from the meal planning to the uh, to the tour uh, throughout the entire thing in both languages, Mandarin and in English. And, uh, and we were standing in front of one of our, um, the big, uh, screen in the front and the, uh, most senior minister says to his, um, 
lieutenant that was with him that something in in Mandarin. And I was like, what did he say? And he said, when we get back, we must build something like this. Wow. This is so special. And I just thought, you know what? We really changed the way they saw certain things and learning in, in that was happening within the U.S. So. so what's the latest you've stayed up at Deloitte University? Oh, I've stayed up the, all night long. <laughs> <laughs> How, what's the earliest you've gotten up at Deloitte University? The exercise classes start at 5 a.m. I was just going to say, I absolutely, when I when I was running it, I had I stayed there a lot. And I had the same room, just like everyone else. There's no special rooms uh, on, on the campus. And uh, I was probably in the best shape then because I got to work out every day and the great gym was right there. So one program at Deloitte University is a, an outside, most of the programs are for your own people. Yeah. But there is a program they do for CMOs. They bring them in once a year, early in the new year. And this is in West Lake, so outside Dallas. And that is how many years old? Maybe five? Uh, I think it might be six, but yes. Uh, six years old. So what have you learned from that program where you bring in top CMOs for several days to intensively work on their leadership? What have you learned in those six years about building leadership skills with senior marketers? Well, one, I would say the, one of the pieces of feedback we always get is people don't feel like they take the time to really reflect and build their career. And, and I'm struck by that. These are senior people in organizations. From the great brands of the world. From the, yeah. And they, they, they're like, you know, when was the last time I did this, that I had an opportunity to sit and be with peers and really reflect on what's important to me. So that to me is one of the most important things all of us can take away is to make sure you find time to prioritize that. The other thing I would say is that we often are focused on the technical capabilities of our jobs and and the learning that is important in whatever career you're choosing. And what I think we find is that it's really honing communication skills. It's honing empathy. It's figuring out how to how to understand and really listen to others. And some of those skills we don't spend as much time working on. So you're let's get into the world of CMOs a little bit more deeply. You're an, a unique person because you are a global CMO of a very large enterprise and you work with global CMOs of large enterprises. So what are you hearing beyond what we just talked about as the most pressing, difficult, intractable issues the modern CMO is wrestling with? Well, I think talent is a huge issue, and that, but that's not new. Um, and, and we can talk a little bit about that in a, in a moment. Um, you know, global issues are huge. I think that's just you know, uh, these, I think those are the two most important issues right now facing any business, regardless of CMO or not. I think it's, it's figuring out employee engagement and, and, and understanding the global landscape. But for CMOs specifically, I think it is figuring out how to measure and, and, and be effective in the C-suite so that, because CMOs have very different jobs depending on the organizations that they're coming from. The, the, some of them are very specific go-to-market strategies in a direct-to-consumer environment. Others in our environment, as an example, in a B2B, it's a bit more uh, engaged uh, and requires a bit more face time to, to build that out. And so different solutions are needed. And so for a CMO, when you think about all the technology that's out there that I could get distracted by, all of the internal uh, brand culture issues that could take your brand off track, uh, you know, issues, the types of things that are, am I really still making a human connection with my customers and not being distracted by the automated processes that are all out there? So there's so many, I actually think it's really hard for the CMO to get 
to get clarity as to what they should focus on because they need to focus on the issues that matter to their C-suite and their peer group. But gosh, the issues down in their muck is big. It's big. So if a, a CMO of a large enterprise walked into your office tomorrow and said, I'm joining X company, what are your three or four pieces, two or three pieces of advice to that person walking into that new job? Well, what, what do your customers, what do their, the new customers say about that company? What is their brand reputation outside? And then what do their people inside say about their company? What is their culture? Because those are mirror reflections of one another. So look for what they say outside. Look for what they say inside to understand the issues. And then understand what the rest of the C-suite is focused on. What are their goals and their strategies? The best thing a CMO can do is embed the customer in the center of the strategy. And I will tell you, I know many CMOs who aren't even invited into the conversation on business strategy. And that would be where I would want them to be able to articulate the value proposition of the customer in that strategy. Ask the tough questions around that. Those would be three. So if a CMO is not invited into a strategy discussion at a company, how do they get invited? How do they get through that. I think the first thing they have to do is understand what are the drivers that their peers uh, are focused on. So if they're, if the head of sales is focused on um, speed to market or days to close a sale, what is it that the CMO has? What information does the CMO have? Client insights, knowledge about the pipeline, whatever, that they can bring to bear so that they could translate that into something that this insight helps to get to uh, shorter days to sale. If the CFO is focused on financial return, how can some of those metrics that you have help to show how you're driving growth within the business? Risk officer, the HR person who's focused on culture, I think the CMO has as big a role in culture as the chief talent officer. So just aligning your agendas is one of the ways I think to start getting invited in. Brand purpose is the mantra for CMOs these days, right? Most popular word from the ANA last year, which is the largest trade association in marketing in the U.S. So I, I love that. I think it's enlightened. It's, 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 it's great progress versus, I would say, 10, 15 years ago. I want to hear you speak about brand purpose because you've taken Deloitte on a brand purpose journey. So I want to know why you did that. What was the compelling business need? What have you learned that could help other CMOs who are on this purpose journey? I appreciate you giving me credit for taking the, us on the journey. I don't know that I did. Um, well, but your team did for sure. I, yeah, but the, the, it's very visible. We we our purpose is everything to us. Really, we everything stops at purpose for us. What's fantastic, I think, about our purpose, which is to make an impact that matters, is one you would not find one person within the Deloitte environment that does not know that is our purpose. Um, we have a purpose that allows people to manifest it themselves individually. So because our people are our asset, they're the ones in the marketplace, how they show up, right, reflects our purpose in making an impact that matters for our clients, our people, and our community. What you would see at Deloitte is everyone has sees themselves in it. And that, I think, is what's most important. We've made it so that everybody is the purpose is accessible to everyone in the organization. So all you know, 290,000 people can feel like they can make an impact that matters. But we went one step further than that. And then we said, okay, we need it to make sure that it shows up in our culture and our people. So one, are we doing that? So we started to tackle issues like well-being 
it, this is for inside. We started to tackle issues like well-being. We tackled things like uh, maternity leave, uh, paternity leave, uh, family leave. The We tackled issues that were to represent that our people could trust us. That was super important, that our professionals felt like they could trust us in uh, in living out our purpose, meaning we were willing to make an impact that matters for them. And when you think about our clients, what we said was we want to make sure that we're able to solve the toughest problems that our clients face. And so we needed to make sure that we were building an apprentice model and that we were making work matter to our people. And so we took took on specific initiatives that were um, very much aligned with the greater good. Just recently, our CEO uh, signed along with 200 other CEOs with the Business Roundtable uh, positioning, which for us, when our our CEO uh, shared that he participated in in signing that, one of the things he said was, the reason I did it is because this is who we have always been, because we've always been a more than profit. It is about our responsibility to society and our community. So we have a number of efforts that we've started within the last five years that are around trying to close the gap for economic um, inequality and gender and diversity. And we took those things where we have programmatic ways, but we also made it part of every day. So it isn't something that sits on a shelf as an initiative. It's something that we are. It's just how we measure our success. So it isn't just financial reporting we put together. We put together reporting against how we're impacting our community and how we're impacting our people. And that's what made it more real. We've all been there. You spend millions of dollars each year driving traffic to your company's website, and then the results come in and they're just not what you hoped. On top of that, 81% of marketing leaders say website ownership is a challenge. So what do you do? Well, you switch to Webflow. Let me tell you why. Webflow's visual first platform empowers your team to own your company's most valuable dynamic marketing asset, your website. From launching a new site to optimizing for SEO and conversions, Webflow gives you the tools you need to drive business growth fast. Unlock your website's full potential when you build, manage, and host with Webflow. Get started today at webflow.com. So what what didn't work about your purpose journey? Did you just stumble? Did you fail anywhere? Was it a smooth, straight line? Why did you begin? Was it something you sensed in the environment inside the company or outside the yeah, company? Yeah, our it was our senior executive team globally that sat down and and said we we have one. We just need to figure out how to articulate it. Uh, so I don't I, I don't think it was because I don't I think if you ask most people they'd say it really hasn't changed. Like it is what it is. It's just now we have a way of saying it and uh, and ways of describing it and illustrating it. The um, so, but I wouldn't. I don't know that I would say we've had too many bumps on the case of purpose. I think purpose has probably been one of our more successful um, efforts because from the top down, it was believed and and it was lived, and that's what's I think brought it to bear. Now, because it's to make an impact that matters. If I if I had one thing I'd say about it, we probably could have come out sooner with. Well, what are the behaviors it looks like? Mm-hmm. What what was it to show up? Because to get two hundred and eighty five thousand people to show up a certain way is pretty hard to do, and we probably could have come out sooner with mm-hmm. that. But purpose is probably our strongest anchor. I do believe it's one of the differentiators for us, and I'm I I wouldn't change really the fundamentals of that for us. One challenge I hear in the industry about purpose is measuring it. 
So you're, you had the behaviors that you think are all about purpose. What about measurement? How do you know that's baked into how you evaluate your work and your people so it's sustainable? Any learning on, on measurement? Well, I think that, so measurement for the, our community has been easier, right? So whether that's sustainability efforts or uh, one specific initiative we have is 50 million futures. And we want to impact 50 million futures. We measure that by the number of efforts we have outgoing that our you know, people report on. So we do track uh, that. As it relates to our people, we certainly have engagement scores and, uh, and, and things that are, um, you can report through surveys and so forth. But we really try to focus more on are our people, is the retention that we have there that we want from the people that we, we want to retain? And that comes from, is it meaningful work? And get, do they get to do hands-on? And do they get regular feedback? And because we think those things are things that matter for uh, for our professionals. So we do track it in that regard as well. For our clients, some of it's external recognition. So one of those things, of course, um, we were just named the um, uh, the best professional services brand uh, in the world. And Congratulations. Uh, thank you. And we were also listed on um, Forbes' list of uh, companies that uh, do do good in the world, uh, make an impact to change the world. And those would be two external measures that we really we really value. But honestly, the best measure of our clients is our clients is being continuing to be the trusted advisor for our clients. So, and we measure that we look at our relationship with clients. It's not something we go out public on and to say mm -hmm. lots of things sure. about, but that individual relationship that we have with the client is what matters most. So the next question you're going to hate because consultants hate this kind of question, but who are the other CMOs and companies out there that you really admire? that are acting on purpose, bringing it to life, winning in the marketplace, setting an example for others? Yeah, I don't actually mind that question. And the reason is the same reason we did the sponsorships. There's lots of great winners. And we think it's important to be part of the ecosystem, not necessarily um, uh, view them as as competitors uh, to us. We, we think there's a lot. The pie is pretty big. So um, Alicia Tillman, she's fantastic. And I our relationship with SAP is amazing. We do lots with them. We did um, a podcast with Alicia. I she know. was remarkable. Yes, she is remarkable. Um, so we, Salesforce, fantastic. IBM, fantastic. I mean, all of them are just great companies and do great things. And we're lucky we get to work with them. We, we uh, I don't know, there was a book, Frenemies, right, mm -hmm. that said uh, that, that uh, you become friends and, and are competitors. You know, you're going you're gonna to do what's right for your customer and you're going to fight for the marketplace, but it really does in the end come down to how, um, how you work together to solve the toughest problems. And you might need to use other, other people to help you do that. Thinking about the ecosystem is really important. Sure. Now, I want to get even more personal and talk about your role at Deloitte. CMO. So I think about four years ago, you were named U.S. CMO, and then it was expanded globally. So my first question is, you're the first person to be in that role. Why did the company, your peers, your partners decide you needed that? And what was your brief coming in? So it's a new role. That's, that's tough. Yeah. Um, so th it was. I, I would say that at Deloitte, uh, about five, six years ago, marketing wasn't even at the table. And uh, we didn't we didn't have a CMO. I think marketing was sort of maybe even viewed as people who did the PowerPoint and uh, packaged in in that sort of thinking. And it's not that it didn't exist. It's just that it was in pockets and dispersed throughout the enterprise, and uh, and and wasn't viewed as an influencer in driving growth. 
our, it was our new CEO um, about five years ago who said, we need to do this. Now, I didn't have a marketing background, or at least I viewed myself that way. Let me put it that way, because I have viewed myself as a consultant and didn't think I was really in marketing or sales, um, but that I was I was a consultant. But I think one of the reasons that they picked me, to be completely honest, is that I'd been there a long time. I knew how to get things done. I could navigate the internal waters of a firm our size. And I had the respect of a number of partners, having been a client service person. What I've come to appreciate is that, one, I was a marketer all the time. And now I tell everyone in our organization, you are always a marketer and you are always representing sales. Um, the, uh, so now I appreciate that and I didn't at the time. But I, uh, I, so I think that's one of the reasons that, uh, that, they took, that, they, that they asked me. I think the mandate, though, was, Diana, just get us on the map. Honestly, I think that was the That was mandate. the brief. That get was the brief. The get us on the map. And we had a long way to go because we were, one, so siloed, and we were, um, we were not at the table. So I needed to do two things. I needed to make sure I had the talent to deliver on that. And so we did a lot to invest in our people and also bring in outsiders. Uh, I wanted to make sure that I could you know, have credibility when I said we could actually drive growth. And I wanted to make sure we had the right people. Now, we used a lot of outsiders at the time to bring them in and, and to be part of that. We used internal agencies we acquired to help us. Uh, the second thing I did was make sure I understood what it was that we were trying to achieve in the rest of the business. How did the business want to grow? What were our focus areas? What were the bold plays that, that they had on their agenda that they wanted to drive forward? And so I focused on those two things. Then I spent my time, probably 50% of it, inside the organization trying to advocate and convince and cajole uh, lots of people into understanding what marketing could do. It was an education process and getting credibility uh, inside. And then outside, I spent it with clients talking about what we could do. So it was, um, it, it was a, I think what we did, we were able to ultimately consolidate, upgrade our talent. And I would say that actually we got external recognition first. It actually happened before our internal partners were convinced that we that we had the the chops to deliver on the on the promise and so so that was helpful because once we got the external recognition it helped to attract the talent and once we started to get the talent then actually our performance went up too so what do you love about your job and what drives you crazy uh, I really love just about everything. Elizabeth can attest to that. Uh, what I don't like are, uh, I have a love-hate relationship with PowerPoint. I think PowerPoint is a tool to help you think. And I think people that use it to present uh, just or, or communicate or tell a story drive me absolutely bonkers. Uh, so uh, my advice would be not to do that uh, if, you, if you come to Deloitte. But um, I, I, I love the work we do. I love the impact we make. And I absolutely love the people. I know my retirement date will will someday come because we do have mandatory retirement at Deloitte. But once that happens, um, I can't imagine ever working or loving a place as much as I do Deloitte. So in your four years as CMO, what are you most proud of? And what do you, what do you wish you had accomplished you hadn't? Or where have you stumbled? Okay, well, I've stumbled a lot, but let's focus on the positive. What What am I most proud of? I, I think I'm, I loved uh, our 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 uh, campaign where we had, um, it was for the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, the Great Barrier Reef is the largest living organism in the world. Uh, the Australian National Bank and the Australian Conservatory 
asked us to help them save the Great Barrier Reef because of plastics and other uh, damage that was happening to the reef. They they wanted uh, uh, some work to help do that. And we were able to value something that is priceless. Um, and it was $56 million uh, in the end. But we used that to convince the Australian people uh, as to why they needed to help save the Great Barrier Reef. And that particular campaign um, won a small award at Cannes. I was particularly proud of that. Uh, and I was proud because it was our client work that we did. Uh, it was the way we told the story that allowed us, I think, to win uh, in the end. And, uh, and so it was a, it was a fantastic, uh, piece that I was, I was proud of. Do you want me to go into the failures? <laughs> just one, just one. We don't uh, talk about those enough. Yeah. Learning opportunities, right? Yeah. No, I, I've, I've had, I've had a lot. What I, the reason it's actually sometimes hard for me is because I fail all the time and I just, but I never look at it like that to, to Jim's point. I see them as opportunities and I can and adapt pretty quickly once, once I see that I have, uh, that that's happened. Um, I would say that my, one of my failures was around a really great campaign that I love um, and it was look again, and it happened again. It was something we did, and we wanted people to look again uh, as a way of thinking, like look again because it's. Uh, so this was a campaign for yourself for Deloitte. Yeah, it was a Deloitte campaign. In the market. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep, and and we wanted uh, we were trying to communicate uh, when you if you're going to solve problems, you have to look at it again. You have to reimagine it. You have to rework it. You have to rethink the things that you thought you knew. That was our goal, and. Uh, I think what happened a little bit internally was, oh, no, look again at us. Look again at Deloitte. And, and I was like, no, that's not at all yeah. what we were trying to do. Just the insight, <laughs> you know? right? Yeah. And, uh, and so that was, that was a disappointment. Um, we tried to build on that later, uh, but it, was, it probably wasn't exactly what I wanted. So you came in as the first global CMO. What were the most important capabilities you wanted to build within the company that were not there at the time? That's a good lesson for all marketing people, we're not often explicit enough yeah. about the capabilities that will drive future growth and revenue and talent. Yeah, strategic insights was the number mm -hmm. one. Uh, we needed people who could uh, could really go deep and understand the landscape and come back with strategic insights. Uh, creative uh, was important because we wanted to bring it in-house, and we did a setup for in-house agencies as part of our consolidation, uh, and data analytics. Uh, those were the three, but strategic insights by far was the most important because that's what gave us credibility when sitting across the table from one of the business leaders. Uh, when, when we knew something and could truly understand something that they didn't, there was a big aha. So we have a room full of students here. What coaching would you give them in getting good at strategic insights? Uh, I think that it's one, um, I think it's a really good question because I, um, I, I think I, we had to hire it. Um, it wasn't something that necessarily came naturally. So you hired people? We hired who, people and, uh, and we acquired agencies to be part of, of doing that, I think, really well. Um, but I think it's, it's really spending time with the customer. Uh, it, a survey and, a, and, and some, some soundings, they are not sufficient. You actually have to go see what is happening at customer environments and talk to real customers and, and hear what they have to say. So I'd say that's probably number one and something I think people tend to brush over. They think they know. Um, I think understanding the um, landscapes that are already known, like doing your research around the competitors 
what space can you legitimately own versus something that's owned really by someone else? Or is it even unownable? And then how do you narrow that? Because sometimes it's too broad. Um, I think making sure that the brief is really tight and relevant is, uh, is key. Um, and then, you know, spending the amount of time up front doing the research, I can't tell you the number of times, and it still happens within Deloitte where we say, oh no, we don't need to do all of that because we really do have this understanding. And in the end, it always turns out we should have done the research. So I think making sure you spend the time to do that. You have so many relationships within Deloitte. Is your most important one right now with the CEO? Uh, the most important one right now is with, um, I wish I'd say yes to that. I would say that's definitely where it started. But right now I would say it's with the chief talent officer globally because we're trying to, that we have so many culture uh, issues that we need to, not issues, they're just, we need to make sure that our, um, that, that our values and, our, and the way that we show up everywhere is aligned in every country. And that we have operate in 150 countries. And so right now I would say it's actually with the chief talent officer. But I think in general, yes, it should be with the CEO. Your CEO has to be behind uh, your purpose and your agenda. So this relationship between talent or HR and marketing is trending, yeah. right? So tell us more about how you form that relationship, what's working about it, what others could learn in other companies about your relationship with your talent officer against the goal of bringing your purpose to life consistently in every country with every person. Yeah, we have somebody in our organization, they said this line that the talent war is over and talent won. I just think that's so great. Um, but it's, uh, I think that um, part of why it became so important, I think, is that, again, for us, and it isn't, it's not any different for any other company, but I think it manifests itself bigger for us because our people are our asset, because they're the ones showing up in the world. And we just needed to help people understand, well, what does it look like when you show up and reflect our brand? And so spending time, I mean, I, lucky enough, I had a good relationship prior to uh, that person having the role. And, uh, and so that was easy to build upon, but it was really trying to get crisp on what does it look like when we show up outside uh, it, to our clients and, and then trying to activate that for our people. So we spend a lot of time together. Uh, it's, it's a super important relationship. It is, it is the way that our purpose gets activated. So understanding that if whatever you do on the inside, which is one of the reasons why we focused internally first doing things like the family leave and well-being, these were not on our executive agenda at all. Five years ago, when I first walked into my C-suite job, these were not what we talked about. We talk about them all the time now. And the reason is because if you really don't live it inside, eventually the insides will show up on the outside and your brand will be exposed for what it isn't if you can't do that. And so I didn't have to make a case for it, actually. I think our organization just embraced it. Super. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. Well, we're going to open up the room to questions in a moment from our students here because we are recording live at the Lindner College of Business. But before we do that, I want to do a lightning round. 
to end this discussion with Diana before we open up for questions. So favorite course when you were in college at Xavier University? Um, swimming. <laughs> you still swim? Yes. Very good. Were you on the team? No. No? Okay. What do you read or listen to every day? Okay, I read a lot. Reading is probably my my um, my main thing. I, I right now I'm I love business books. I might be the only person that ever says that, right? Everyone else says, "Oh, I love a good novel." I love business books. So if you ask me almost about any business book, I'd probably tell you that I've read it. Um, what what I'm reading right now is the uh, Second Mountain by David Brooks. Love it. Mm. I'm not yet done with it, but I loved all of David Brooks's books. Um, he also wrote Road to Character, which I thought was excellent. But this book, I, reason one of the reasons I really like The Second Mountain is because I feel like it's really reflective of where our society is right now. And uh, The First Mountain is all about what you're focused on right now is acquiring, building your resume, growing and learning and, and, and thinking about your own independence as a person in the world. The second mountain is about your interdependence with everyone else. And, and if you can do both at the same time, that's a gift. A lot of people go up the first one and then the second one. And, uh, and I, I'm just, I'm really enjoying the book. Are you a podcast person or a radio person? Um, I'm a podcast and I listen to the CMO podcast. Thank you Jim very Sengel. much. <laughs> this will be a good one. Uh, the first thing you do in the morning, breathe. And I mean that like mm -hmm. genuinely, I'm just like, I will wake up. My husband tends to sleep longer than I do. And it's just breathe and, and reflect on, on the day. Um, but after that, I would say it's no holds barred. Anything could happen. Best restaurant you've eaten in lately. Gosh. By the way, she wasn't prepped for any of this. Yeah. I don't <laughs> know about that cold. best restaurant. I do love food. Um, I guess I just haven't been that inspired lately. I'm going to have to oh, find wow. someplace. Okay. We'll talk about this after the podcast. Okay. okay, good. Series you are watching now? Do you watch any Amazon, Hulu? Uh, I don't, I Netflix? don't watch a lot of TV. Um, and, uh, in fact, I know one of your questions on your podcast you ask sometimes is, uh, what can you not find out about me? And I know that he is a, uh, a Game of Thrones person because I've heard him talk about it. I don't even know what Game of Thrones is about. I've never seen it. I don't know anything. And you're still I'm thriving, just, right? And, and yeah, so it, it well, it didn't affect that. <laughs> so I just finished Stranger Things. That was my so awesome. Okay. So favorite marketing campaign. Uh, this one is easy, um, and it's not it's not a suck up to Jim, despite the fact he's from Procter and Gamble. Uh, it, it was um, it's a razor. It's the trio. It won in Can. I think it was about three, maybe yeah. four years ago. And uh, it's the story of a razor that is a reversible razor so that a dad who was shaving his father, um, he could do it with a better razor handle than trying to do it separately. And the reason that I really valued that was that uh, I sat, literally, I was out in Cannes, I was in the audience when they won, I'm sobbing, and because I could see myself in that commercial. And I do think when you see yourself in a commercial, that commercial has succeeded in its goal. Of uh, of making you uh, a loyal a loyal fan um, for them because my son who has a disability will always need someone to help him shave and uh, I remember watching that and thinking you know what that's the greatest thing I ever saw. That's a strategic insight. Yeah. By the way, for the audience, so uh, we live in the same building in Cincinnati. So how often do you see Jim Stengel in the Cincinnati condo, and what is he doing? <laughs> <laughs> this is a really great question because I thought I would have all this opportunity to like suck insights out of him because I'd see him in the building. He's never in the building. 
He's never in the building. I'm a ghost. He is absolutely a ghost. So I don't see him very often. I occasionally look for his parking spot to see if he's in. But outside of that, I don't see you much. I have a really old, uh, like 50-year-old Alfa Romeo in the parking lot that never moves because it doesn't, it doesn't start, of course. It, it's, an, it's an Italian car. So anyway, why did you stay in Cincinnati? I know, you know kind of why I stayed, but why have you stayed here? Well, the biggest reason is my kids. Uh, they're 24. They attend a program here on UC's campus called Impact Innovation. And it's with the program ATS and the Teachers College. Uh, and it's focused on people with disabilities, specifically autism, who uh, learn job skills. And I had have a 20-year charity that we've worked to raise money for, and we've given about a million dollars to UC to have this program. And uh, and that their infrastructure is here, and so I probably I won't be leaving them. Beautiful. Last question. What do you hope Deloitte people will say about Diana O'Brien when you someday have to hang your hat up for the last time with Deloitte? Uh, I hope they say, I think I'm two things. One, I think I am uh, able to see reality. So I think they'll say, well, she, she understood reality, but she always injected hope uh, in that. And it, so it was always a hopeful reality, which I think they would, for the most part, would say. But if they had to say it really quickly, they'd say, she just showed up. She always showed up. Beautiful. Do you have any questions for me? What are you, when are you at the Conto? Never. Never. Because you have another place too, right? You have another home. I have a lifestyle where I travel every week. Yeah. Much like a consultant. And because these podcast people do, they keep me on the road. But I, we also have an old home in Coronado, which we are restoring, a yeah. historic home. So uh, that takes a lot of our energy. And it's a, cre- it's a creative passion project. Yeah, because one day I was out bragging and I said that I lived in the same building as Jim Stangle. And this person said, no, you don't. He has this fabulous other place that he's fixing up and it's somewhere else. And then I thought, shit, did he move? <laughs> no, we love Cincinnati. We'll be here forever. And, uh, but we also love California. We love the water. So anyway, we're going to open it up now for questions from our eager, curious students in the room. So who's going to be the first courageous one to come up front and take the mic? And we love questions. Diana loves questions. I love questions. Well done. Why don't you tell us who you are and what you're studying? Hi, uh, my name is Sarah Unger. Um, I just started the online MBA here at UC. Um, So I haven't picked a concentration, but uh, my background's in marketing. So my question is around um, building those relationships within um, a large organization. Um, it, it seems intimidating. How do you do that? That's a great question. A great I'll, question. I'll punt that to you first. Okay. Uh, I- I agree with you. I think it is, but I think it's super important, so you should prioritize it. One of the things I would say is um, a lot of people just wait back and you know, be the first one to extend your hand. Be the first one to ask a question, just like you're doing right now, because many of these people now will not forget you because you did that. And so being a little bit brave about uh, investing in others and being interested in them, I think you'll be surprised how quickly you'll build relationships. The only advice I have is uh, whenever you start work, go visit a lot of people who are relevant to your role and ask them what they think you should do to help them in their work. And you'll have your agenda and you'll build relationships at the same time. Uh, Hi, thank you for taking my question. My name is Jonathan Buck. I'm a marketing and business analytics double major. And my question is, 
when you look at a company like Deloitte on a global scale, what's the challenge of fostering that culture of hope and impact through like all across the world as you're interacting with a great diversity of people? The easiest way was for us to allow people to define that. So individual markets have different effort, efforts. So in South Africa, for example, they have a, something they call the DigiTruck that our people drive around that give internet access to communities that don't have it. In in the United States, we have uh, something called RightStep where we do mentoring at different um, universities. In um, in Europe, there's a program that is focused on um, people with disabilities. There's a pro program that's focused on ocean cleanup. So allowing everyone to contribute with things that they care about, I think, has been the best way to tap into that natural energy of people wanting to make an impact. Um, you've spoken a little bit about how Deloitte's values have had an impact on your personal life with a flexible work schedule and being able to be there for your kids. Um, but I'm wondering, how have your personal values affected your work at Deloitte? That's, heavy. Yeah, that's a great, great question. Heavy. Um, I would say that um, the moment when I felt the partner step up for me probably clarified my own values. So, for example, I I felt like I knew everything in terms of being a partner when I when I when I was ready to make partner. I pretty much thought like, oh gosh, I'm this is you know I have this. What I didn't appreciate was. I couldn't just I couldn't just take responsibility for myself and own it. I had to do it with others. I had to. So what it did is it it became the sort of reciprocal piece back. And as a result, now I feel this tremendous indebtedness to pay back and pay forward the things people invested in me. Uh, and I would say that's probably one of my stronger values in terms of uh, making sure that I contribute and give back. Great question. Beautiful answer. Next next up. Hi, my name is Maddie. I'm studying marketing and economics. Um, and my question is, so you came into the CMO role about five years ago, you said, and that's a role that manages a lot of the public image and content of your company. And so I would say five years ago is a much shifting political environment since then that increases a lot of tension, especially with young people coming into your organization and feeling fearful about the future and the current situation. So how do you kind of manage these kind of tense political waters or just polarizing culture with young people in general when you're creating a lot of the public public image of your yeah. organization? It's a really good, good, thoughtful um comment because I I would have said to you before that uh, gosh I should control that and I should uh, I should figure out what messages we should let go out on that and what I've come to appreciate is I have to engage in it I I can't shut things down I have to let conversations happen so we have uh, employee advocacy that might say look why are we serving this particular client or that particular client I can't run away from that which is what I I thought I could control it before. Uh, I've come to appreciate there's no controlling it. It's really be, just entering into the dialogue and being willing to be honest and forthright about what you are going to stand up for. It's one of the reasons that, again, in, in the business roundtable or uh, even our research that we have around millennials where we understand the level of trepidation and lack of trust in in institutions that, uh, that folks have today – we think the main, the, the best response to that is to not shy away from it, is to have the courage to engage, listen, and, and, and advocate 
for our people's best interest. Hi, my name is Claire Sudholtz. I'm studying marketing and finance here at the College of Business. Um, Diana, you mentioned that you've had seven different career trajectories within your career. And I know sometimes during that time of question, you turn to mentors. Could you tell us about a great mentor you've had in your career and what advice they gave you that still rings true today? Well, my first mentor was actually a a person at Bethesda who uh, I had worked at Bethesda when I put myself through school and I thought I would- And for our listeners, Bethesda is? uh, Is a hospital that is now part of TriHealth. And uh, the I, I worked there, and I worked for the CFO, and I thought the CFO was going to hire me to work and run. Actually, when I, once I graduated with my master's, I thought I'd get hired to run a department there, and I was very excited about it. And he basically said, no, you are not going to, and you'll need to go find a job now. And it was wonderful because it forced me to get out of my comfort zone. And then since then, I'd say for all the other opportunities, I – I was never prepared for any of them, but I was prepared to be unprepared. And and that was a gift because of that that first time of being pushed out. My name is Jacob Franzen, and I'm studying economics and finance. Um, my question is, Deloitte is heavily known as an accounting firm. So as the chief marketing officer, what do you think has been the most impactful thing for changing the brand in a way that people realize that you do a lot more than just marketing or just accounting? Yeah, it's a good question. And I get asked that a lot by our internal um, folks because we do have such a strong uh, accounting and tax brand. So we have five world-class businesses that we're associated with. Consulting is actually our largest of those five businesses, but our heritage stems from audit. And a big part of building our brand to be more expansive is one, not to shy away from what audit practice did for us, which is it allowed us to have trust. That's one of our most important attributes is trust. We want to have trust. The capital markets trust us. We want shareholders to trust us. We want businesses to trust us. So that's the first anchor. The second one, though, was, and it's really the explosive growth that's happened in my tenure, has been the um, opportunity to uh, really drive a growth mindset, meaning we went and acquired a bunch of businesses. We went, we said, we don't know all this, so we're going to go get capabilities in these areas. So whether it was monitor or uh, bearing point or heat, you know, these are, these were capabilities we didn't have within Deloitte and we wanted to grow. And so we needed to have that mindset to, to go about acquiring those capabilities. So then figuring out how do we embed some of those capabilities and innovation into all five of our businesses is really how you would think, how we try to think about it now, is that they're all about innovation and they're all about a single culture and they're all about one purpose. And so that's how we knit them together uh, so that people understand that we're more than one thing. So one more question from our students and I have the final question. Hi, my name is Margie Stringfellow and I'm studying accounting and economics here at UC. My question is about Deloitte and how you see the company changing over the next five years or so. And as CMO, how do you see yourself creating that change while keeping aligned to um, Deloitte's core values? I don't think it's going to be difficult to keep aligned because of our purpose and it's so well embedded. But how I see it changing, I think that I can't even imagine how much it'll change. I think about how much has changed in just the last two years. Uh, with technology and AI and machine learning. I mean, we've gone from an audit where you used to be able to do random testing to where we have machine learning 
and an AI that does 100% of testing something. Those kinds of changes in the way and things that we work are significant. And that's happening in every industry, not just professional services industry. So the thought that we're in this time of incredible technology change is super exciting um, but also unimaginable in terms of how it'll be, how different it'll be. What won't be different is uh, that it's still about the human experience. It's still about what customers need, uh, what your people need, and whether or not you have the courage to do it. One final question, Diana. We have a room full of students. You've had a remarkable career. You're a, you are a remarkable human being. You're a dear friend. So I think your role model for how many of us want to go through our life. What is a piece of advice for these young people in the room and our listeners, many who are students, uh, about their approach to life and their career? Um, I would say make every moment matter that you can. You have an opportunity to create moments and to respond to moments. And if you can uh, go into those moments and realize the difference you can make in someone's life, something that you could... You know, maybe they just needed to hear a friend's voice. Maybe they have a problem. Maybe they're changing jobs. Maybe they're, uh, their kids are sick, um, whatever. And if you can approach that and, and really think about how you can make a moment matter for someone, that's a huge differentiator for how you live your life. And ultimately, I think uh, it, it, they add up to such a substantive impact that you can't imagine it in the individual moments. But I think that's how, that's what gives your life meaning. Thank you, Diana. And now let's give her a nice bear cat. Thank you for being with us today for this live version. That was my conversation with Diana O'Brien. What I loved about this conversation was Diana's pure joy and gratitude about her career with Deloitte and her very strong relationships with all of her colleagues. I also loved how she interacted with the students, and I want to really thank the University of Cincinnati for hosting us for this fabulous podcast. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.